Hey there, this is Pete Townsend from Norio Ventures, and welcome to Money Never Sleeps, a podcast that looks inside the head of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by PAT Fintech, the training partner that demystifies fintech and digital finance for financial services professionals. We've got Brian McDonald on the show this week for part one of a two-part series on M&A and growth stage fundraising. Brian is a managing director at Bay Advisory here in Dublin, a team of corporate finance specialists who apply their knowledge and expertise to the tech sector, helping these small and medium enterprises sell and fundraise at the best value. Continuing along the theme from recent episodes of looking at entrepreneurship downstream from where Owen and I apply our trade, we thought that getting seed stage founders in our audience thinking about their options down the road was a good idea. So let's just ramp right up into the flow with Brian McDonald of Bay Advisory on this week's episode of Money Never Sleeps. Money Never Sleeps, pal. Here we go again, recording today from the home studio with Brian McDonald, Managing Director at Bay Advisory, a Dublin-based team of corporate finance experts who specialize in M&A and growth stage fundraising for technology companies. With that, welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks, Pete. Great to be here. Awesome to have you here. I know we all met back a couple of years ago now at this stage, I think, and all stayed in touch. It was probably about a year into your adventure at that point that we, uh, we started talking. So yeah. it's great to finally have you on the show. Look, great to be here. Looking forward to the chat, guys. Cool. Uh, I I'm, think with a no, lot. I'm a bit of a fan. I listen to your podcast fairly avidly, so it's great to be on it. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Good to hear. Yeah, we got it. We did a shout out last week to a guy Neil Ryan, who I used to work with back in the Fidelity days, and one of my one of the listeners from the U.S. got in touch. Sean Ward, pal as well. Shout out to Sean Ward. He was the uh, founder of Gizio, a fintech in the U.S. It sold out to Jack Henry. Uh, he got in touch and said, you know. Heard the shout out to Neil Ryan, sent chills down his spine. Like it was, you know, back in the good old days, 20 years ago. So, never forget show your age, from. please. Yeah, never forget where you come from, right? <laughs> um, but speaking of the US, at least half our listenership is in the US, and there's some crazy, crazy stuff going on there as we record tonight, 9 09 p.m. on the 6th of January. And we won't get, get into what's going on in the US Senate right now. But with obviously our US audience, perhaps thinking about expanding to Europe through Ireland. I think we got a ready-made audience for you, Brian. Also, the local Irish tech entrepreneurs as well. So I was really eager to have this chat just to kind of really see how it all works, right? So without much further ado, how about we just have you get into your backstory and share with the listeners how you got to this point? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So when I finished school, I was kind of broadly interested in business like most people. So I did a broad business degree with a language and uh, really loved French. Went to France, studied in France, had a, had, a, had a really super time. Finished up university in Trinity and I kind of said, you know what, I really don't know what I want to do. And when I say I don't know what I do, it wasn't that I didn't know, you know, whether it would be kind of accounting or banking. I really didn't have a clue what direction I wanted to go. Other than broadly, I liked the idea of business and technology. So somewhat, you know, against the wishes of my parents, I decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm just going to go to Japan for a year. So I applied for a teaching job in a place called Iwate-ken, which is a part of Japan, right in the north, one of the most rural places of Japan, actually, and very few foreigners. So randomly, I found myself there teaching French in a university and teaching English and had an absolute ball there for about a year and a half came back in september 2001 
and the world. I mean, it's kind of interesting that we're recording today in a, a really interesting time in US history, but I arrived back looking for my first job in September, just, just after 9-11. So I was going through airports just after 9-11 home from Japan. So I got home and the world had changed completely. So I scratched my head and said, look, I need a job now. I've kind of spent the last 18 months, you know, teaching English, but having just really having a great time. So it, it really focused my mind. And I said, you know, what? I've, I've just got to I've just got to find something that pays a few bills. It gets me out of my childhood bedroom. So I had a couple of approaches from some of the big four accountancy firms and I liked what they were doing, really enjoyed it. But ultimately, in the end, they just pulled back and said, you know what? We're not taking anybody out at the moment. We don't know what's happening in the world. So eventually, a, a very small practice, actually called Diagnon Cathy O'Neill, took me on. And at the time, they're, they're still around. At the time, this was a, you know, a really small practice, sort, sort of accountancy practice where they hand you a, a box of receipts and say, pull these accounts together. Funny enough, and I think about it a lot, it's probably one of the best things that happened in my career was that I didn't join PwC or KPMG straight away because I ended up really in a situation where I had to learn everything from scratch. And I got a lot of experience in very small businesses. After that, I, I qualified as a chartered accountant. And then I decided I'd, I'd, get, the, I'd get the badge, I'd get the, the kind of big four experience. So I went to PwC, stayed there for two or three years as a manager. And then I guess the bigger move at that stage was I moved into leverage finance and corporate finance at AIB. From there, after about four years in AIB, we're kind of through to our next crisis, which was the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. In around 2010, the world was falling apart and AIB was closing its leverage finance office. So again, at this stage, I was married with a young son and essentially my job was going and was going pretty quickly. So I took the very difficult decision to, to move to London. Family stayed in Dublin. Wow. I commuted I commuted back and forth for about a year, and that was very difficult. My wife, obviously, I, th I think I mentioned to you before, my wife's a doc. She was working in a hospital here. I was commuting back and forth and really didn't want to move the family until I, sh I was sure this was something we were going to do. So I ended up in London with GE Corporate Finance Bank on the turnaround and restructuring team because that was basically all that was being done at that time in the, in the cycle. And after about a year, moved the family across. And then the family were probably only there, uh, we were only there about six months to a year when I was working on the turnaround and restructuring of a document management business, a kind of an old school printer called ServicePoint, worked on that, turned it around and sold it to a business called Paragon. And then really quickly thereafter, the CEO of Paragon, a great guy, a fellow called Paddy Crean, asked me, well, will you come across to Paragon with it? And, you know, eventually I said, yes, I would. So I kind of leapt from a very banking finance background to suddenly running essentially a UK business, a UK printing and document management business. And it was, look, it was a space I knew pretty well as a banker, but, you know, it's a totally different kettle of fish when you're actually running these businesses. So I spent about a year uh, working on the service point turnaround and then moved, up, moved to the board of the Paragon Group itself which was really a, a big move for me. I came back, I moved the family back to Dublin. Then I took over the role of being head of corporate finance in Paragon, whilst also being, being a kind of slight troubleshooter. I'd go around the group and fix some of the problems. And also, as I said, look very closely at acquisitions. At the time, Paragon was really very focused on, on a couple of types of acquisitions. One was consolidating the document management slash printing space. Really interesting space but consolidating very quickly, real technological urge. The two types of acquisitions, the first was consolidating these types of technology printers that were 
struggling with new technology and were essentially commoditized business. The other types of acquisitions were these high-end OCR businesses. So, so character recognition technology was just in its infancy then, but it was really growing quickly. Scanning technology was really big at the time. So on the one hand, looking at businesses that were consolidating, buying turnover, and on the other hand, looking at these really high-tech businesses that were adding value to the business from a technological perspective. Okay. Then after a great time in Paragon, I guess at this stage I had I had three young kids and the role in Paragon was really exciting, but I was all over the, the, the world with it, really. We only had about 15 people in Dublin, and at the time there were you know, probably 3,000 employees. So uh, dotted all over the world. So it was, really, it was a really hardcore lifestyle. I was away a lot from the family. I was also, at the time, I'd become a shareholder, and I was on the executive board. So it was a really interesting, really interesting role. But eventually, about four years ago now, four and a half years ago now, I kind of got the feeling that I, I really wasn't able to commit to another long period of that sort of lifestyle with Paragon. So very amicably, I, I just approached the CEO and said, look, can we have a chat about this? And very quickly, it got sorted. In the background, what had been happening all the time is, I guess about two years before that, I had joined the Bloom Group, the Bloom Investment Group here, here in Dublin, which is a an investment syndicate specialized in technology. And I really got interested in that type of investment. So a lot of stuff was starting to come together in my head. I, I could see from the Paragon experience that there were lots of small businesses that were poorly advised from a corporate finance perspective. And at the same time, I was looking at per- personally investing in small, early stage technology businesses. So these things, at the same time I was looking to leave Paragon, were all coming together in my head. I could see that there was a requirement for a fairly specialist corporate finance house. And a corporate finance house that was prepared to take on much smaller businesses. And, and there are some great bigger corporate finance houses in Europe and specifically in Dublin. Uh, but most of those really, for a, lot of, a variety of reasons, won't get out of bed for fees less than kind of 100, 150K. Mm-hmm. But smaller businesses can't, get, can't afford that. They tend to be advised by often very, very good accountants who produce excellent accounts and do excellent tax returns, but they don't really understand corporate finance. They don't understand buying and selling businesses, and they don't understand the fundraising process. So all of those things kind of came together. Um, initially, I thought it'd be, it'd be a one-shop house that'd be by myself, but there's actually six of us now. We have a presence in Ireland, and we actually have a member of staff now in LA. It's been good, it's been busy, and I love what I do. Great. It re- really interesting backstory. And from looking at your LinkedIn profile, Brian, and, and knowing you a bit, I was just trying to figure out this connectivity point to the SME space. What I'm hearing is your first experience as an accountant, like you said, being handed a box of receipts, right? And working with the smallest businesses from the very earliest days of your career, that must have left some kind of imprint for you, right? Mm -hmm. And then seeing those tech companies that were being integrated by Paragon and probably getting your head around that side of it and the contribution to geez, the working world, really, by emerging technology, and then your involvement with the Bloom Group. Did I kind of hit the nail on the head there with those three things that kind of said what looked like a life of working in a big business space that you said, to hell with it, I'm going with small businesses here? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I don't want to, I don't want to uh, give an impression that I'm an oracle of some sort or that this was all very well planned. A lot of this was, a lot of this. It never is. New- you know, it, it things things fell the right way that I got to a space now where, you know, it all looks like it's all been pointing this direction. But, it, you know, for long periods of my career, it was never it was never that clear. 
you know, it, it, when you pull the threads together now, it kind of becomes obvious that what I'm doing now is what I should be doing. But what's been lucky in some ways is that what I try to do with Bay Advisory is to bring a, a the professionalism and the rigor of a large corporate finance house to smaller businesses. Yeah. And to keep our team pretty lean and to be able to offer senior people all the time to these smaller businesses. And a big part of our, our offering, I mean, we at the moment, we probably do about, you know, I want to say... 25% of our work is is fundraising advisory and about 75% is is sales side advisory but they're they're quite complementary and even though you know very often the fundraising advisor is a bit of a labor of love because it can take a huge amount of time very often through our professionalism we get the sales side mandates later on so our model is that ultimately we'll get those mandates or those bigger fundraisings later on in the process. And that's kind of been useful. And the other thing that, I, that I've done, and, and, you know, I think it'd be good to touch on at some point is that I also have joined the board of a number of kind of fintech businesses and high-tech businesses. And I think that also lends a bit of credibility to, to your ability to help these businesses and also your relationships and that people rate you enough to, to bring you onto their board when they don't really have to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I know what you mean there. I going to say, it's really interesting bringing that corporate advisory specialty piece to the to the smaller companies you know like you said when they're typically might be working with an accountant or something it's actually it's being able to bring that expertise down to that earlier level and work those companies because i'd imagine what you find even when you talk about the kind of work you do with some of the companies is that it's the earlier you can get in and get them kind of on the right path through fundraising and through thinking about that piece around uh, potentially positioning something for a sale like that's all incredibly valuable for them earlier on is that what you find kind of having that the earlier engagement it's more value yeah i think that's right and i think that's why we we call ourselves kind of long-term players so we are prepared to spend some time with a client or a potential client and do things that most advisory firms run a million miles from, which is give free advice. So we're very open to giving free advice. You know, so we're very open to initially having conversations. We're even okay to give a view on valuation and, 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 and let, before we even have an engagement with them. And, you know, that would be, to, to a lot of advisory firms, that would be sacrilege. But we use that as a, as, as a way of showing what we can do. And also for our side, like, you know, we use it as a way of filtering out clients who are serious, who, who we want to work with. Because what we learned very quickly was that we need to be very careful in terms of the businesses we take on. And we need to be long-term players because it's only in the long term that these businesses become profitable for us over time. It's over a number of transactions over time that they, that, that they become a profitable client for us. It would be very rare that a, a, a seed stage business is that business that we help is a profitable engagement for us. So that that's kind of our, our, our way of working. And we can do that because we don't have overheads that some of the bigger guys have. You know, we don't have huge offices. We don't have secretaries. We don't have that kind of heavy administration costs that other guys have. But we do have, I guess, the same quality people. And that's what we haven't scrimped on is the people, the professionals that work. But we've And nobody who works for us is involved in anything else other than client work. So we lean very heavily on technology to automate what the stuff that we do. And we, we work hard on making sure that everybody is value adding to you. You know, you have a friend for life with a client that you, that you brought through this process, you know, from, from their idea all the way through to, you know, a VC or an angel putting cash in their bank. Yeah. If you've been through that process with them, you know, you have a, you have a, you have a friend for life. Absolutely. And, you know, later on, in either you know series A, series B, they come back to us, or if they're looking to exit, or they're looking for some sort of other other corporate finance event, 
We're normally first people that talk to. Yep. If you think about the year of 2020 that's now behind us, right? It was an absolute curveball for everybody, to put it lightly, <laughs> not just professionally, but also personally. What are some of the evolving market trends that you're seeing, Brian, that are pushing tech SMEs to start thinking about their options for selling their business? Well, look, before we get to the kind of profession, I think the personal question is interesting. I think I said, as I mentioned to you guys before, I'm I'm feeling pretty optimistic today. And my wife is a, is a hospital doctor. She's a, she's a geriatrician and she got her COVID vaccine, at, you know, two hours ago. So, you know, notwithstanding the outbreaks that are in Ireland and are all over the world, I guess I'm feeling I'm feeling personally pretty optimistic um, um, going forward. And, uh, you know, I I in terms of the trends, I think there are some interesting COVID trends on the on the business side. And then there are some interesting trends on the on, on the on the availability of funds and the financial market side. I think what's really interesting, and I always find really interesting, an awful lot of what I do would be non-quoted, so very often private businesses. As you, as you guys will know, in Europe, the public spaces are not, the, the public markets are not quite as broad as in the US, mm-hmm. and bigger companies remain private for longer here uh, than they would in the US. But what's really interesting is as we're seeing the, the tech valuations, particularly in the US, but also elsewhere, uh, are really getting quite bubbly. And, and, and you know, the, the smarter people than me will say whether they're overvalued or not. But what we are seeing is that we're seeing bigger investors coming down to private businesses and pushing valuations up in the M&A tech space. So people are asking themselves the question, if I can buy Google or, or anything else for, for X, then you know, a private business at Y looks like a real, looks like a real, a real steal. Yeah. And ge- generally that ends up in a situation where the founder is in a good spot, you know, being compared to a publicly quoted business in the US as opposed to being a private tech business in, in Ireland. And, you know, most of the time we will, when we do our work with our clients and we look at valuation, we'll always look at similar publicly quoted business in the US. But then we'll always look at the discount, which is a huge discount to that. But we'll do, we'll do some sort of comparison. That discount's been getting, been getting, it's still there and it's still significant, but it's been getting tighter and tighter over 2020. Has it? Which I think is a positive trend, right? Um, for cert- certainly for 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 a sales side. So I find that interesting. I think valuations are still pretty good. Activity certainly in Europe on the M and A tech side has been reasonable. It hasn't really gone away, like unlike some other spaces, you know, in, in leisure or, or or anywhere else where there's been a real reduction in transactions. Transactions have been pretty good, certainly in the in the mid market and um, private space. There are some obvious trends in terms of valuations. I mean, there are certain businesses here. Um, that have done reasonably well in COVID, and it's the classic diversified healthcare or virtual healthcare, virtual assistants that have done well. So there's some interesting trends around businesses that have have done well. But in general, I found that tech businesses have been valuations of tech businesses have held up really well, and and tech entrepreneurs have actually been some of the most resilient people that I've seen in in this COVID because. You know, I was amazed. We, we we have one client we're working with that is a um, is an outsourced IT provider, not quite in our usual type of business, but it's an outsourced IT provider. And he would tell me a story, stories about certain very big businesses who, you know, couldn't couldn't have their their staff working offsite. Whereas for a tech for a tech business, working offsite, working off a laptop is what they've been doing for years. And that just for me represents the, the kind of resilience of, of, of the smaller business, which I think has actually seen them through pretty well. And there's still quite a bit of pent up demand. And I think, you know, 
notwithstanding a potential correction in the public markets in early in January 2021, I, th I think there's likely to be some pretty good deal activity, both on the fundraising side and on the um, the, the M&A side. What's been interesting, though, and worrying, I think, uh, on a less positive note, is the, the, the fundraising side, whilst absolute volumes of, of, venture, of venture capital and angel capital have stayed relatively strong in Europe and elsewhere, that hides a multitude in that a huge amount of the capital is going in Series B, Series C rounds, and seed rounds are really struggling. Angel investors are, are really pulling back in Europe, and that's, that's been seen in Ireland as well. So... I, I, that is a real worry to me is, is where seed capital comes from and you know it takes it takes a lot of stones to to invest in a in a seed business and when you have macroeconomic noise like covid in the background it becomes even more difficult to to get those people to take a punt and that's my real worry right is that we are we are potentially not funding very credible businesses and very credible founders who should be found and would have been found would have been funded rather in any other economic environment. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by PAT Fintech, demystifying fintech and digital finance for financial services professionals. PAT Fintech enable financial services professionals to transform their capabilities into the digital age with dedicated virtual training programs geared towards those that can develop, deliver and monitor optimally customized user experiences balanced by appropriate governance, control, and oversight. To learn more about PAT Fintech, go to moneyneversleeps.ie slash PAT Fintech. Are you finding, I suppose, the conversations you have with entrepreneurs, are, is there more of an interest in people looking to cash out or just looking to exit because COVID has been such a bad impact or it's just like even from a personal point of view has impacted on people that they're thinking about selling more maybe than they would in a typical year you, you, yeah you see a bit uh, to be honest if if someone came to me and we, we do this quite a lot right if someone came to me and said i want to sell because COVID has just been too tough i'd really tell them look have a think about that i really i'm not not with that you know i'm really not sure that's a good decision to make based on COVID because i'm not going to try and predict how the disease is going to go but we do know it will end and Selling a business based on a kind of a, a once-off shock event probably isn't a great idea. So if, if, a, if, if a potential client came to that, I'd really like to interrogate that and I'd really like to understand the thinking. Because very often, if a client comes to me and says, you know, I want to sell the business, very often, really what they're saying is, I want to de-risk. And they think that the only option here is to sell everything to a PE firm and walk away. Whereas, you know, very often I can say, well, look, you could sell part of this business. You could take a chunk of change off the table. You could buy yourself a new house. You could uh, 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 de-risk yourself personally and still drive this business. So, and I think very often entrepreneurs aren't, understandably, aren't educated in those types of options and those options that are available. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very open to looking at other ways in which we can, we can get the entrepreneur where they want to go to. Which often, when you when you just dig a little bit, you realize that when someone says, I want to sell the business, really what they're saying is, I'm working too hard here, and I need to have a family life again. So there are other ways of fixing that that don't involve selling the business. Yeah, and there needs to be kind of a story for the buyers as well, right? In that it can't just be, hey, this guy's sick of the business, right? Or, you know, this woman is sick of the business. It's something to the effect of, 
we've taken this business as far as we think we can from a strategic perspective. And we know that we need to really achieve some more commercial scale at a much higher level in order to really grow the business. And mm. we'd like to do that through a merger, through some type of strategic partnership with a bigger firm, right? Mm. That sounds like a better story than, hey, I'm just throwing in the towel, right? Yeah, and look, um, you know, the surest way of not getting a deal done is to show any sort of uh, desperation or any sort of any sort of negativity around, mm. around the business because a buyer is, is automatically already on has his suspicions up. It's natural. A buyer always wants to make sure he's not buying a turkey. Yeah. So he's always looking for someone who's trying to potentially con him. So if you're if you're coming across like you just want to get rid of this business, you just never you'll never get a deal done. And one of the things I always tell my clients is that we need throughout this process to be prepared to walk away. So when I go when I negotiate on your behalf and I tell and I tell the other side that that's not good enough, we need to be able to walk away. So we need to be able to have our bluff called and to be able to say, okay, I'm prepared to walk away from this transaction and either look for another acquirer or look at another way. And again, you need to be able to be in a position where you you have a second option. I think that's the crucial part of getting a business sold is by being prepared to walk away and have another option that's acceptable. When you get to the business end of a deal, it, there's always a last minute hitch. Every single time there's something that, that happens. And, and it, it can be a roller coaster, yeah. uh, but you have to be prepared to. Be, if the deal isn't good, walk away. And as your advisor, despite the fact that you know our incentivization is typically success based to get a deal done, we would regularly tell our clients, "Look, if he, if, if if they if they keep pushing this point on X, whatever the point may be, we need to be prepared to walk away." Yeah. You know, and, and that's where I guess the early process helps too in that hopefully earlier in the process you have looked at the market and you see that there are other people who would buy this. It might be a setback. It might be that you have to go back three or four steps uh, to go to another acquirer. It may be that you have to suspend the process, but in the end, that's probably the best, the best route. Yeah, it's a really interesting context and one that differs quite a bit from a founder raising seed capital, right? Where if you are a existing business and the founder wants to perhaps sell, take a bit of money off the table, whatever. Yes, definitely. You need to know what your walkaway point is because you can then just go back and keep running the business. When you're at seed stage and you're raising capital and it's either deal or no deal, usually no deal means no business, right? So mm. it, it's a bit harder when you're working with seed stage founders to, you know, what is the walkaway point where you say, listen, mm. I am not taking that money from that investor and I'm actually going to just extend my uh, my business plan by a couple of years on minimum capital as possible because I know I'm not going to be able to get the big check I need in order to really accelerate. Right? Yeah. Look, and I think that's the that that's a that's a, a really good point, Peter. And what you're doing there is you're weighing up giving you know a, a huge percent of your business up, but to drive that to drive that smaller value much more quickly. So in other words, you have 20% of, of 100 million rather than having 100% of a million. Yeah. You know, th th that, sort of, that sort of thinking, right? That you end up in a situation where you're prepared to take that bet or not, or you make the calculation that actually I'm better off continuing to bootstrap this because if I come back in a year's time, my valuation will be five times what it's worth and I'll have, I'll have those options. But I, I think in some ways the, 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 the psychology flips a little bit there, Pete, because... Very often, and I'm sometimes I'm I'm occasionally on the other side of the table where I'm investing in in, in these type in these types of early stage businesses, 
And, you know, one of the things I always think about is I've got to keep the founder motivated. This founder walks away mm-hmm. for, for an early stage VC capital, capitalist or for an angel, then the business is gone. Very often, the businesses I deal with, there's no assets, zero assets, zero actual tangible assets. Yep. It's almost always the founder, the idea, tech. So if you, if you get to a situation where you've demotivated your founder, you're not in a good spot. So that's, a, that's something you've got to be really careful with. And that's something I would always point out to potential investors and say, look, you can push this, but I'm not sure you want it. Yeah. Yeah. And that demotivation can come from a very low equity percentage that the founder is left with, or it can come from just being, you know, unhappy with the strategic direction the business is going. So yeah, you yeah. got to be really careful there. I think that's right. And I think one of the things I know very often the founders I work with are very high caliber individuals. I and mean, if they weren't starting these kind of fintech fintech businesses or other types of deep tech businesses, they would be working for Google. They'd be doing some high-end job or some big tech businesses. And I'll point out to them, to, I'll point out and say, look, I'll point out to, to the potential investors and say, look, if, you give, if, you, if this guy ends up with 10% of the business, he's much better off going and going programming somewhere else for a big tech business here in Dublin. You know, why, why would he do it for 10%? Absolutely. And I think there's those types of arguments that, that you, you make on behalf of your client. Yeah. Back to that startup phase, we know that the way you set up your company at the very beginning can impact how you're able to sell the company and the liberties you may take with that at a later stage. Any tips for entrepreneurs just establishing their businesses now, especially for those that may be eyeing the U.S. market? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a few points. I think in the first instance, alignment is really important. So if, if you're setting a business up and your intention is to quickly go to the U.S., you want to make sure that your seed investors can invest in a U.S. business, for example. So I often see situations where the, 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 the funder doesn't realize that they're going to the U.S. that quickly. And the documents will stipulate that this, this fund can only invest in an Irish entity. Mm-hmm. So then when you're trying to flip it to a Delaware Corp, you have these, all, these, these enormous problems generated pretty quickly. So you want to make sure that your, your, your funders really understand your trajectory. And that's the same for anything, not just for, not just for funding. You want to make sure you're on the same page as your, as your funder. In terms, of the, in terms of eyeing the, U, the U.S. market, I, I, think there's a, I think there's a really interesting dynamic as well around the U.S., and that is in terms of valuation. So when we look at valuations in the U.S., they tend to be much more favorable for a founder in the U.S. than they are here. So you very often see, see Irish companies saying, well, I, I want to raise in the U.S., and it's never quite that easy. So you will, I won't say never, you will very rarely find... Uh, a U.S. fund and the angel who's prepared to invest in anything other than a U.S. incorporated entity. So you've got to be really careful when you look at the valuations in the U.S. and you say, I want to get that valuation or, you know, I could go and get this valuation in the U.S. Why should I accept this valuation in Europe? It's not quite, it's not quite a, 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 a like for like for, for a number of reasons. The other thing to remember is that if you're looking at a U.S., presence there's a couple of things it'll almost always be a delaware corp mm-hmm. you'll almost always want um the, the investors will almost always insist that you are based in the u.s but there, there are relatively few successful early stage fundraising of european businesses by u.s capital relatively few very early stage i i and i think but i think overall and you know we can get into tax and we can get into registration and all sorts but really the core point is the alignment to make sure that everybody's on board that the U.S. or elsewhere is where you're going to go ultimately. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, I like like you're saying, I'm talked to a few founders who, when they start talking to the Silicon Valley VCs, the first expectation is that yes, you will set up a Delaware Co. Whether it's a top co or it is within your structure somewhere, but it's uh, a pretty important thing to do. And I know that when you have U.S. investors coming to coming to Ireland. They may not be familiar with Irish law and legal structures and how that all works. It's just a different ballgame, right? So mm. lots mm. of early thinking there needs to go on. I, I, I think yeah, and look, it's, it's, I've, I've done it recently with a, a, business I said on, a business I said on the board of, we've done this recently, we flipped into a Delaware club. So it's, it's doable, it's achievable, but you need to go with your eyes open that it's a, you know, we had, we had pretty chunky legal bills in the US, we chunky mm. legal bills in Ireland. We had our existing investors who had to agree to all of this. You know, we had to, our investors had to agree to flip to a Delaware Corp. Irish individuals and funds agreeing to flip to a Delaware Corp. So there was a, you know, quite a process. It's not just the, you know, start a, start a company in the U.S. and, and, and keep going. It's, 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 it can be complicated. And, and the reverse is true as well for U.S. businesses looking to move into Europe. Absolutely. It's, it's not that straightforward. Yeah. It strikes me, Brian kind of in terms of all the conversations and the work you do with the companies you're working with that you're seeing are kind of your role is that kind of trusted advisor piece. I know, you know, which probably sets you apart from the the larger kind of corporate advisory kind of players and stuff. But, you know, that trusted partner, you talked about a friend for life and some of the, you know, it, it feels like that's how you kind of position yourself probably naturally in terms of the work you do and the way you kind of are with, with clients. But do you see that that's kind of personal thing or is that just uh, how you see your kind of role evolving with the companies that you work with? Because I know you talked mm-hmm. earlier about being on boards. So you would imagine that, you know, as you've worked with the company over different stages, that the natural fit then is to be on the board and to work with them in that sort of piece. Yeah, and I think that that's often the last piece is, 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 is the joining of the board. And I think it's interesting. So we, in-house in Bay Advisory, we have these discussions all the time where, you know, most corporate finance advisors will give you the old adage, it, it's, it's, as, it's as difficult to sell a small business as it is to sell a big business. So you might as well sell a big business because your fee is a percentage of the sale. That's broadly what you hear from most people. So like a lot of my colleagues and compatriots in the corporate finance world will look at us and scratch their head and go, why are these guys, who I think we'd be well respected around the place, why are these guys dabbling in businesses that have been sold for a couple of million bucks or, 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 or businesses that are funding, ha- that are only raising half a million euro? Why are these guys dabbling in this? And I think the answer to that is that, A, it's what we want to do because it's the type of people we want to be involved with. And the, sec- the second point is that we're longer term players. So, you know, if you were to ask me in, in, in five years' time, what will the profile of the business look? I think all of our new clients will still be of the same profile. But I would expect that over that time, in five years' time, we will have also worked on much bigger deals, primarily because we've taken these businesses from, from early stage. But I don't envisage us taking on, I don't envisage our profile of clients, new clients changing ever. On those directorships, Brian, I'm always interested in kind of the interplay between those on which you are a director and those in which you have this advisory role, right? There is a line that you kind of have to draw between those two. Are there some things that you've learned from those where you just are a director uh, that you then have brought into your advisory clients in terms of frameworks or lessons learned or anything like that? Yeah, there's a few things you need to be careful. As a director, obviously, I, I have duties that I take very seriously. So you need to be very careful to make sure that you're you're on the right line. You're on the right side of all of those 
obligations. And I'm a director of two businesses. One is is Cerebrium, which is a, a character recognition business. Very interesting guys, Jill and Ken, based in based in Donegal, and they're really interesting business. Very smart people. They do um, character recognition um, software predominantly for the insolvency sector. And Umba, which is a which is a fintech, an African fintech, Tiernan and Barry based, uh, a Kenyan fintech, doing some really interesting stuff as well. I think it's kind of obvious what, how I ended up on the board of those. I, Cerebrium was an obvious fit because I know the space really well. So in some ways, that's slightly different. It's not, whilst obviously I have a corporate finance role, I also understand the space pretty well and help them out with that. In terms of Umba, I guess that was as much a relationship play. I guess I invested very early, very, very early in Umba, very small beer I invested with them and then just kept going on the journey with them. And, you know, now they're, but now that's the business that flipped to a Delaware Corp. They're now based in San Francisco and just, and, and really smashing it out there. So in terms of the learnings, I guess one of the big learnings I've, I've made is that I really want to avoid being that kind of dispassionate advisor who doesn't understand how much these businesses matter to the founders. Mm-hmm. So when I see the guys work, how much work they do and how much they love what they're doing and how passionate they are about it, when I look at engaging clients on the sales side, I really have that in my head to say, you got to be patient with these guys. Their passion may come through in terms of the instructions they give you. They may not always be very clear in terms of whether they really want to sell or they don't want to sell because it's, it's difficult. It's emotional. It's an emotional journey to sell a business that you've poured your heart and heart and heart and soul in for you know ten years. So I think that's the thing I've learned is to is to really have show empathy and to understand the journey these guys have been on because I think that's what is really important. And I think again that's what gets me more business over time. Things like that I'm prepared to I'm prepared to recommend they shouldn't do a deal even though we lose money on them not doing deals. I think that's, they're the learnings I have, and it's, it's kind of the soft skills more than anything else, Pete, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And I mean, that's where I get the most joy out of this as well, is just those relationships, right? And just being able to help, whether it's, it, when, it, when it's something completely untechnical, completely unmarket focused, completely uncommercial, completely unfinanced, where it's just a personal situation where they need to bounce something off you. And uh, just get a different perspective, help help them step back, you know. The other point on that really is that from our perspective, the credibility we bring from being on the board of two really high-tech businesses, you know, people say, this guy knows, I don't profess to be a kind of pure techie or a programmer, but I know what I, I know my way around technology businesses. Mm-hmm. I know what to look for. I know KPIs. I know what boards are looking for in these businesses. I think that's all, that also lends a kind of additional layer of, of credibility that these are the types of business that we work with, you know, and I think that's that's really helpful. Okay. There's, pr- there's probably a lot to be said as well in terms of your relationships with the companies, especially earlier stage ones, that, you know, you, you're on a journey yourself in terms of your own business. You know, you're not coming in, kind of like you said, that dispassionate piece, you're not coming in as an advisor for a big firm, you know, just looking at it as a transaction. You have mm-hmm. gone through... A process yourself you're on a journey yourself building yeah. a business you're adding you're up to six people now so there's a lot of kind of empathy there in terms of your understanding of the, the challenges a company are facing and the, their knowledge yeah. that you kind of feel their pain as well i think that's right owen i think what's that's the biggest learning i had personally when i set up my advisor i've been doing transactions all my all my career so getting a transaction done for me is actually the easy part what was much more difficult was 
everything else about running a business, you know, making payroll, those types of things that I've never had to thought about before when I'm working for big banks or big, I just got paid, big check, bonus come in at the end of the month, happy days. Whereas now I have to think about everything in the business. It's not just, you know, get a deal done, move to the next deal, have your closing, have your few beers and closing and move to the next deal. You know, it's, 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 it's much more involved than that. And that's my, my biggest learning, right, is that I didn't really, I understood deals. I understood deals when I worked for the big corporate. I didn't really understand, fully understand running your own business, which again, you know, uh, has been a big learning for me. Yeah. Well, Brian, it's been a fantastic conversation tonight, and I'm thrilled to say we are going to bring you back for a part two next week. <laughs> are you sure? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We need to go deeper. Yeah. You know, there, sure. there's a lot in prepping your business for a sale, right? Different options that you have, including M&A, as we talked about, aqua hires, mergers, make the decision to go it alone, like you said. And what are some of the things that you think yeah. about, and how do you prep your business to actually do this? And it's not an easy process. It's not a quick process. So I want to dig more into that next week. But thanks for coming on to the show tonight and really yeah. looking forward uh, to that next chat. Thanks, guys. Really, really, really enjoyed Great the chat. Great for having you. Next week. Thank you. Talk soon. That does it for this week, folks. And thanks to Brian for opening up his mind to help us figure out why he does what he does. Tune in next week for part two with Brian and a deeper dive on prepping your business for a sale. Links and show notes for this episode are on moneyneversleeps.ie, so check us out online. Also, you can subscribe to our Money Never Sleeps newsletter at moneyneversleeps.substack.com. If you're enjoying Money Never Sleeps and want to see it continue, make sure you hop on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. You can also review us now on Podchaser, so check out the Money Never Sleeps page on podchaser.com. Don't forget Conan Brophy from Create Sound. He mixes and edits each episode for us and is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I help startups get their products to market, get customers, and finance their vision. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or at norioventures.com, and you can follow Owen Fitzgerald on Twitter at OwenFitzgerald9. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money never sleeps, pal.